I tell Jim regularly, thank you so much for preparing a worship service that helps me worship and that I get to experience with all of you as we worship together. Okay. Yeah, just want to make sure. I dropped my phone this morning, but I didn't think that was my phone. I leave all my baggage on the seat there. Well, it's good to see you on this summer Sunday. And uh, Nahashen, good to see you with that shirt. I've never been to Kenya, but I wouldn't mind having one of those shirts to, to wear, let alone to preach with. And uh, especially on a hot, sticky summer day, you know, there's some of us that really don't like humidity. Am I right? You know, as we talk about, you know, well, it's hot in Arizona, but it's a dry heat. And I mean that. It's, I could take that all day, but the humidity. And when you think about that kind of weather, you just say, well, fall is coming and winter will soon be here and so forth. So you just kind of push it off, thank God for air conditioning and, and move on. It's not really suffering, but it's amazing what we complain about in the first world, isn't it? You know? Think about suffering for a minute, because today our passage is going to talk about this, as strangers in this world we suffer. And I guess I've, I've thought about it in three different ways. The first is the kind that is deserved. So, you know, if you, uh, I don't know, you hit your finger with a hammer, it's your other hand that did it, you know, it's your fault, that, that kind of thing, deserved. Or if you don't study for an exam and you fail it, you have no one to blame but yourself. Or if you get fired because of poor job performance, it's easy to blame other people or your boss, but, you know, the fingers go back at you. We all know what that's like, uh, countless ways we complain and we suffer, but it's really something we could have prevented. The Bible does address that sometimes. Uh, other times, it goes to this other area that we could call, uh, if you want to call it undeserved suffering, or the things that happen to you in life that you don't have any control over. Like yesterday, this auditorium was packed with people for a memorial service for Jim McCaslin. Some of you were here. Many of the people didn't know Jesus, but they knew Jim, and they knew Jesus kind of through Jim, so it was a great opportunity to share the gospel and to talk about Jim and his life. Um, 74 years old, consummate athlete, died on a treadmill, heart attack, so quickly. In fact, you know, Neil led the service, we all participated, all the pastors did, but Neil made a comment to us that in the last 10 weeks he has done five memorial services for people connected with Chelton. Many of you deaconesses were here to help, and you have been here because you help out in times like this. And it's when death kind of just smacks you in the face that you say, like one of the deaconesses said to me yesterday in Fellowship Hall, I hate it. She was talking about death. I hate it. And we should. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But whether it's suffering like that that comes to a family or 
whether it comes on slow like cancer, some of you are battling that disease, or whether it's something like your boss who is impossible to please, or if you're a boss, employees that you find impossible to manage, or maybe a family member that abused you, or maybe a friend who slandered you. And the list goes on and on and on. You could say we have a right to complain about those things, but if you could separate out the first one from the second one, those things come when we're not even asking for it, and we can't even change it. The Bible addresses that in, in many ways. It's called suffering. There's a third way that Peter particularly addresses suffering, and it's not just like coming as it does from a, a sinful creation, but it's specifically aimed at you because you're a Christian. And when I thought of examples for this, I, I can't think of a whole lot in, in my life, let alone our lives as a church. I can look outside of our country and talk about persecuted Christians that maybe are in prison or Christians who have to meet in some secret location or they pay a price in some way. I know in church history, throughout the world, there's always been Christians who feel it because they are Christians. And my guess is, and I think it's a pretty strong guess, is that we will continue to see Christians marginalized in our society, and then eventually will come the outright criminalization, do I want to say, of certain parts of our faith, and then with that, the persecution that comes along with that. I think we need to get ready for that mentally. I don't know what that's going to look like. Uh, some of you may feel it when perhaps you're not invited to a party because you're a Christian, or maybe you're skipped over in your job promotion, or maybe someone breaks a relationship with you that you know, because of some way that you've taken a position that God doesn't want me to. And that person says, well, then I don't want you. And you, you could understand the pain or the sting that that feels like. That's called persecution. That's called suffering. And Peter, in the letter that we're looking at this summer, addresses this head on, at least in Numbers 2 and 3. He says for number one, if, it, if you're suffering because of something you did, well, that's your fault, so just own that. But when it comes to the things that you don't have responsibility for, there's a certain posture you have to take. There's an attitude. So today, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. My passage that I was assigned... Um, is a long one, and this is the first of two parts. And I thought, instead of me kind of telling you what the topic is, I'll read it, see if you can pick it up. Here's what the scripture says. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. He quotes the Old Testament, do not fear their threats, do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. 
always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So what's the paragraph about? Now, when I look at this and when we study the Bible, you know, you, you want to uh, kind of read it over and over and over again so that you start to see things that are repeated over and over again. Here's an example this idea of doing good, good deeds. If you were here last week at our family service, we kind of reviewed what the book of First Peter was like. We had uh, Tim Stevenson and Mary and Hannah uh, talk about what doing good in their neighborhood was like. And so here he's talking about it again. But if, if you uh, look again, the word suffer shows up. It's twice in the passage. So what he's saying is there's something about the way Christians suffer that should be a good display of a good God. Does that make sense? So instead of when something goes wrong, we blame other people or we're just crabby and nasty or we complain a lot, there should be a marked difference in our lives. And the way he says that we should achieve that is really twofold. And do you see that in verse 15? He says, to set apart, to, to regard Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's the first thing you have to do. And isn't this interesting? I love the way the Bible talks to God's people because always God will say, not Here's what you should do. Now, come on, act right. Before he gets there, he says, here's who you are, and here's how you should think about yourself and about reality. And now, here's the way that your new attitude will show itself in the way you live. You see the difference there? One springs from a command. We would call it legalism. Just do it and it's done, even though you may not want to do it. The other springs from the heart. And it's, it's, it's true, you own it. So what does it mean to regard or to set apart Christ as Lord in your heart? A.W. Tozer, the Christian author and pastor and even mystic, said this once. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. Sounds right, doesn't it? Because your God concept defines your relationship to him and therefore your identity living out of that relationship. So for Christians, we have to remember, and remember we do as we sing, that Jesus is Lord. Well, what does that mean? In, in Greek, the word kurios was the same word that they applied to the emperor, the guy with all the power. 
In fact, in Rome, the emperors were divine. And that's why many Christians were persecuted and died when the officials said, hold it, you, you're, you're not good citizens. Why? Because you're not being politically correct. You say, Jesus is Caesar. And they said, well, that's because he is. And when they made them make the choice, confess, and Christians, many Christians would not. They would not burn the incense, make the sacrifices. They paid with their lives. So what does it mean that Jesus has all authority? Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He died, he rose, he ascended to heaven, and now he sits enthroned with his Father and ready to come again at the right moment in history, unknown to us. He is our Lord. He is our God. He is the one that we praise this morning. When you have that kind of attitude, you realize that whatever happens to you was not a, quote, accident. When the Lordship of Christ really descends upon your imagination, there are no chances. There's nothing like good luck. There is everything but a good God working all things out for his sovereign will and plan. And when you're one of his children, you get to walk with him hand in hand, knowing that what might seem not good to you is really good for you and to him. Because we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. You see the attitude that leads to, you want to call it hope? That's what Peter calls it. So that's why he says, so when, when somebody sees you go through this, this suffering, and you don't complain, and you respond with things like, yeah, I'm praying about it, or I don't understand this. Man, this really hurts. But, but deep down, there's an optimism in the tone of the way you talk. If they should say something like, what? Are you crazy? What Why do you think this? Or maybe if you know the person well enough and they say something that leads you to say something, that's where Peter says, be ready. Be prepared. You see what it says there? To give the reason for the hope that's in you. And the reason for the hope that's in you is Jesus. This verse is not telling us all to sign up for Apologetics 101, which isn't bad, but it's written to all Christians who can simply say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. See that? Hope. Hope. Hope because in our past, everything's reset. Uh, you ever have a problem with your computer? And, you know, the first thing to do is make sure it's plugged in. But then if it's plugged in, just reboot the thing. Many things get washed out, I guess. Is that, I don't, that's not a technical computer way to say it. But you know what I'm talking about. Just restart it. See what happens. 
You ever realize that Jesus gives us a fresh start when we come the first time? And we realize when we come back that we were given the fresh start, but we, we need a fresh start every day. All our sins, the Bible says, are forgotten by God. Behold it, I didn't think God could, could forget. He chooses not to remember them anymore. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. We have a brand new past, wiped clean, washed in the blood of the Lamb. And our present is filled with hope because of what I just mentioned, that God is working in our lives Good for us and good for him, even though it may not feel good. And in the future, wow, it's super good. I was trying to think yesterday in this memorial service, what do people who are sitting here that knew Jim think about themselves perhaps falling over from a heart attack? What, what's their hope? And Paul says it so well to the Thessalonian church. He says, it's one thing to grieve. Yes, we miss our loved ones and our friends when they go. And that hurts. But we do not grieve without hope. It's almost like there's a little smile on the tear that falls from our eyes. Hope. So, be prepared to discuss it. Be prepared to say something. You can. Don't wait for Pastor Neil or me or Shep or some professional to talk about Jesus. The best way is for you to do it and say it. Now, now that's the first paragraph. That's not so difficult. You ready for the second part? that builds on the first part? Well, once again, I'm going to read it, and I want you to see what you think it says, it means here, beginning in verse 18. You see the link here, because he's going to talk about suffering. I'll just put the words in highlight here. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered. See that? We suffer. Now, let's talk about Jesus. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. 
Now we're going a little deeper, huh? What is all this about Noah and the flood? <laughs> what are we talking about here, Peter? Well, I don't want to make it more deep than it is, but this is mysteriously beautiful. Because here's what Peter does. He has just told his Christians in the Roman Empire and us, when you suffer, do it differently. Do it with hope in Christ as your Lord and Master so when someone sees it, they will be prompted to ask, why are you so hopeful? Now he says, your life is just like Jesus' life. Jesus suffered. Now watch what he also says. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus resurrected. And Jesus is now in victory over all, not just people, but spirits. He's enthroned in heaven as king of kings. And more than that, <clears throat> Noah is just like you and me. Noah. You know the story in the Old Testament. In fact, they made a movie of it. In fact, somebody gave me a DVD of it, and they went like, yuck, here, you can have this. And I'm trying to think, I never watched it, but because I read some reviews on it, and I said, well, okay, I, I can use two hours better somewhere else, but it makes me wonder now, maybe I should go back and find it, unless I threw it away. I don't, I don't know, but forget the movie, because maybe the movie wasn't exactly right, but at least you know the story in the Bible. Well, what about Noah? Well, he, like you, was a stranger. Oh, right. In fact, here it says Noah and his family ate in all. So, seven plus one. See the parallel there? So, what is, what is this passage all about then? What this passage is saying is that you suffer, Christ suffered, Noah suffered, but Christ is our Lord, and because we are in him, we will be victorious. What Peter does in this mysterious and complex paragraph is to give us more reasons for hope. So let's just look at them quickly. Um, what does it mean here where, this is easy, Christ suffered and died once? Now that note, Jesus' suffering is far different from me hitting my finger with a hammer or someone dying, right? Because our suffering is multiple. Jesus' suffering was once on the cross for all. Now, you could say Jesus' suffering was atoning. Ours is participatory. It's hugely different, but it's still similar. But what does it mean in verse 19 there, where it says Jesus made this proclamation? 
Now, who did he make a proclamation to? Because you read in the Gospels, Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again, and he talked to some of his followers. But when did Jesus make a proclamation to, it says, spirits who were disobedient in the days of Noah? What do we got here? Well, now I'm just going to go here quickly. You can always email me. I'll write you back more if you want, more details here. But in the book of Genesis chapter 6, it talks about demons who came to earth and cohabited with human women. You say, what are you talking about? You didn't have enough coffee this morning. Oh, yes, I did. And I'll say it again. You say, that's sci-fi. No, that's Bible truth. You say, but that's, yeah, I know. Take it. I don't understand it. You say, but that is so weird and different. And Well, I say, well, now you know why God decided to flood the world and start over? Yeah. And it's not just the book of Genesis that teaches this. It's all the literature that was written by Jewish people in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Peter talks about it here. Peter talks about it in 2 Peter. Jude talks about it. It was so evil and radical that God said, i got to wash this world and start over with Noah, the new Adam. And you know what this passage says? That Jesus specifically told those powers, those demons, you lost, I won. They were trying to corrupt the messianic line. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Well, if we can intermarry and somehow spoil that promise, we will win. And Jesus said, oh, no, you didn't. And at the end, it says, he is now seated, victor, king Jesus over all spiritual powers. Now, does that make your suffering just a little smaller, just a little easier to handle? He is your Lord as well. So that's Jesus. What about Noah? Well, I already mentioned, he was a stranger in this world, just like us. But he believed God's word. What was the word of God to Noah? Well, it was kind of twofold. The world will be judged. And secondly, there is hope and salvation Inside the ark. Judgment and salvation. That's the gospel. <laughs> That's always been the good news that is based on the bad news. And so Noah lived for hundreds of years, hammering and sawing away as a silent witness to the promises of God. You use your imagination there. Are you crazy? What are you doing building a boat in the desert? Rain? And Noah kept on because he had faith in his suffering. He had hope in his God. And we know the end of the story. It did rain. And he was in the ark 
and the ark floated on top of the waters of judgment, and the ark landed, and he came out of the ark onto the new earth. You see the parallel there? Old earth, new earth. Judgment, salvation. Peter says, that's the Bible story right there. Yes. And right at the heart of it is the ark that Jesus builds and the water that ends the old life and begins the new life. And Peter says, yeah, that is a picture of our baptism. You see it? It's, well, if I say it's mysterious, maybe that's the wrong word. It's beautifully complex. The pictures, the, the shadows in the Old Testament that point to the realities in the New Testament. So what about baptism? And Peter says, oh, now, now please, it's not the magic of the water that gets on your skin. It, there, there, there's no such thing as holy water that people get baptized into. It's your pledge that your new life is starting. You've got a clear conscience before God. It's, this is what um, you would call um, metonymy for you grammar people, right? You know what metonymy is? It's when a figure of speech in which a related term is substituted for the word itself. You see what, what, what he does here? It's like when we have the Lord's table here. We call it, and the Bible calls it, the Lord's table. Well, hold it. Table? Isn't it the stuff on the table? Well, yeah, but a part stands for the whole. And when we say, this is the cup of the new covenant, we'll say, well, hold it. Isn't it the, the wine in the cup? Yeah, don't get picky. This is the way we talk, apart for the whole. We all get it. So when Peter says, water saves you, he's not trying to say that you're saved only by the H2O molecules. He's saying baptism is the grand picture of what happens in your heart with God and Jesus. Now, you heard Pastor Neil announce that we're having baptisms August 11th. If you've never been baptized, I hope, um, hope this starts churning, pun intended there, in, in your mind and heart. If you've never been baptized and you're a Christian, you should be. And if you have been baptized as a Christian, you should own it, recognize it, remember it, because it's kind of like your your. Your, your entry card, your, your badge of membership into the body of Christ. The New Testament knows nothing of a Christian who's never been baptized. It's an honor, it's a joy, it's a delight to be able to say, my old me is dead and I am drowning in death and I am resurrecting and I'm walking out a new creation in Christ. And I'm simply imitating 
what Jesus did in his death and burial and resurrection. I'm getting a little more encouraged to handle work tomorrow. Or that family member that really messes you up. You see what, what Peter's doing here? He's saying, let your imagination, your heart, your mind dream about a different reality. Not only you are a, a, a stranger in this world, but you're, you're being fitted for the new world, the real world that's out there. You know, I sometimes read kids' books to our grandchildren. And it's just... I, I'm not a big reader to start with, let alone kids' books. And, and some of these things, you know, like talking fish. And the kids are eating it up. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm using my literal hermeneutic on this little kids' book here. But his fish don't talk, but in the book they do. And in the imagination of my grandkids, there's a different world out there. And I know that it's not a real world, but it's a fun world. So let's play there for a little bit. And God is telling us in his book, this is the real world. Set apart Christ as Lord. Jesus died. He is victorious over the worst of the worst. And you walk with him as you suffer. So are you experiencing difficulties that you can't change that's not your fault? You may want God to change them, but God wants to change you. He's more interested in your hopeful response to suffering than in your hope for suffering's end. This radical attitude is just like Noah just like Jesus. And since we are joined to Jesus, we too can respond with love to those around us who see us suffer with hope. Oh God, easy words for me to say. Harder to live, but so worth it. So fuel our imaginations with your truth. Lord Jesus, reign in our hearts, we pray. In your holy name we pray, amen.